All right, well, good morning and welcome again. We're so glad you're here. We are actually starting a brand new sermon series this morning. Uh, I am so excited about this. For the next uh, couple months, we are going to be studying and talking about one of the most important books in uh, the entire Bible, the book of Genesis. And Genesis is such an important book for people of faith. It is a book of beginnings, and perhaps more importantly than that, it's a book of foundations, a book that shapes our relationship with God. And you know, as a parent, uh, I think about foundations a lot uh, in this phase. My kids are getting a little bit older right now, so they're not, you know, they're not babies, they're not toddlers. And so one of the things that I'm, I'm very aware of is that the things that happen now are things that they might remember forever, right? Like things, they, they might stick with them for the rest of their lives. Okay, my earliest strong memories are, are kind of from this age, right? Like six, seven, eight, nine, ten. You know, that's when, you know, I have the strongest, most vivid memories from my childhood. I assume that's the case for them. So, right, like we can have interactions and conversations today that they'll remember for the rest of their lives. Now, on one hand, this is terrifying and humbling, right? Like, I, I think every day about trying not to do anything or say anything horribly traumatic. I don't want to scar them for life. But at the same time, it's also an opportunity to do and say things that will uh, stick with them, that they'll hold on to in a really positive way. Things that will build uh, our relationship, will help them feel loved and cared for. Things that will help them to grow into strong, faithful, emotionally healthy people that will help them to make good choices. And so these moments in the early stages of their lives are laying the foundation for who they are. And so, you know, I, I just have this thought every once in a while, right? When something really cool happens, if we have like a really good conversation or a, you know, meaningful interaction, I just think to myself, I hope they remember that moment. Right? Like, I hope this is one of those things that they remember. If you have ever seen the movie Inside Out, like, I hope this is a core memory, right, that, like, kind of stays in their brain and stays up there in their whole processing system. Right? So I think about a couple weeks ago, Gray had a football game and had a really tough loss, and the coach was really hard on them, and I could tell he was discouraged and sad. And, and you know, I just put my arm around him, and I told him, like, hey, buddy, I am so proud of you. And I, and I hope he remembers that. I hope he remembers that feeling. I think about, you know, times sitting in Kaya's room and just kind of sitting on her bed with her and we're listening to Taylor Swift and talking about life and books and boys and, and just all these kind of things. And I hope she remembers those conversations. I hope she remembers that part of our relationship. I think about going to a restaurant on vacation in Wyoming and eating ice cream for dinner because, you know, it's vacation and it's special. I hope, again, that this is something they remember. And I hope those kind of moments have special meaning. And really, in a lot of ways, Genesis is a book of moments that we were meant to remember uh, on a much, much larger scale, much more significant than ice cream for dinner. But it provides a theological foundation for the rest of the Bible. And it's ultimately supposed to shape who we are what we know about God, what we know about our world, what we know about salvation, all of that begins in the book of Genesis. It shapes how we relate to God and our faith. And so today we're going to begin a, a really long journey through this book. Uh, if you've been attending CBC for a while, you know that last fall 
we finished a five-year journey through the story of God and his people. Uh, This was a uh, study of the Old Testament narrative from the book of Exodus all the way through uh, the exile and, and the rebuilding era in Ezra and Nehemiah. And I love that series. That's my favorite series we've ever done. I looked forward to doing that every fall. And I I looked forward to it because I knew that it was going to be good. I knew we were going to learn a lot. And really, that series had a big impact on us as a church, us as a teaching staff, as your pastors. We learned a lot about the kingdom, about kingdom life, and what it means to be people of faith. And so now that that series is over... uh, I, think, I thought it would be fitting just to continue to stay in the Old Testament every fall uh, to study the book of Genesis, and uh, this time we're really going to take our time. So this is going to be a four-year series through the book of Genesis. We'll kind of do a little section each fall. And so for the next nine weeks, we're going to be looking at Genesis 1 to 3. That's like creation through the fall. Uh, next year, we're going to be talking about kind of the rest of what's called primeval history, Genesis 4 to 11. So that's a lot of stories you're familiar with from like Sunday school. Cain and Abel, Noah and the flood, the Tower of Babel, we'll unpack those a little bit. Uh, Then uh, in the next year, we'll dive into the story of Abraham, his journeys, these foundations of faith. And then finally, all the way in 2026, that seems like a long way away, it's only four years but we are going to look at the final section of Genesis, the patriarchs, which is like Isaac, uh, Jacob, and Joseph. And so, again, I'm excited about this series. Um, I am really confident that at the end of these four years, we are going to have grown so much as a church and that God is going to reveal himself uh, in really amazing ways. And so there's a lot to look forward to. Well, we are going to start today, though, literally at the beginning. We're going to start in Genesis 1. Uh, If you have your Bibles, you can turn there together with me now. And this is the creation account, at least the first part of it. And this is a pretty long passage. Uh, I debated on just kind of, you know, summing it up. You can sum up Genesis 1 pretty quickly. God makes everything and get the basic gist of it. But I do think it's worth reading in its entirety because it helps us to get a sense of what God is revealing about himself And I think more importantly, it helps us to immerse ourselves in this moment, right? This this thing, this time, this space that God wants us to remember. So let's go ahead and dive in. We're going to be in Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said... Let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seeds in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. 
The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years, and let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. Verse 20, And God said, Let the water teem with living creatures. Let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds, and every, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the waters and the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Now, I think it's safe to say that this is just an amazing passage. We can feel as we read this just kind of the weight and majesty of the creation story, right? Like God speaking in the darkness and creating light each day making something new, separating the water and the land, making the animals, creating and, and forming man and woman. It's all, you know, just amazing and beautiful. But at the same time, I, I think it can be hard for us to read this passage uh, and, and not see it through the lens of our own context and our own experience. Right? We're so kind of, just kind of trained to read this passage and immediately begin to engage in a larger dialogue. Or there's just these questions that come to our mind. Like, how did God do all this? When did God do this? How long did it really take? Where are the dinosaurs in all of this? And what does it mean when it says that God created the light in day one and the sun in day four? 
In short, we have a lot of questions. How does this all work? How does it work with what we know about our planet and the universe and science and carbon dating and all that kind of good stuff? And just for the record, I think those are fair questions. Given the context we live in, it makes sense that we wonder about those things. And so just for the record, just so you know, we are going to try to address some of those issues later on in the series. So in three weeks, uh, we'll do our best to consider you know, creation within a modern scientific context. We'll do our best with that. Uh, but for this morning, I, I want to focus on the bigger picture. We're not going to really look at any kind of specific details here. We just kind of want to zoom out and think about the larger story, the larger picture of what's happening in here and what God wants to reveal about himself within this creation story. And I think there are really two kind of foundational focus in the, focus in the, focuses in this chapter. There's a lot of things that we could focus on, but two things that I think God really wants us to see and, and hold on to and remember. So let's start here. Uh, the first thing, creation is God-focused. Now that maybe goes without saying, but it, it's really important, right? Right from the beginning, we see the emphasis of this chapter. Verse 1, in the beginning, God created. You might have noticed as we read through the chapter that I said the word God several times. In fact, if you're reading it out loud, it's actually kind of awkward to read because you have to say God so many times. God made this. God said this. God created that. Then God did this. And it's a little bit kind of strange in the way it all flows together. And in fact, in this chapter, the Hebrew name for God, Elohim, appears 35 times. That's 35 times in 35 verses. Now, there's a point to all of this. There's a reason why we see God over and over and over again. It's because ultimately, God is the focus. God is the sole actor. He is driving the action. He is driving the narrative forward. What we see here is that the creation story is ultimately God's story. And right from the beginning, we are meant to see something very simple, but very essential about who God is. We're meant to see the awesome, creative power of God. Right? He is the author of all creation. God speaks and light and matter and life come into existence. He commands the sun and the moon and the stars, and they obey him. He orders and structures our world, and he brings forth all kinds of life. One of the phrases uh, that gets used a lot by theologians is uh, creation ex nihilo, which roughly means creation out of nothing. And this is kind of a, a, a picture of God's power, right? God isn't creating or God isn't making something the same way you or I might bake a cake or, or, or build a house, taking a bunch of existing materials and fashioning them all together and making something cool. Instead, what Scripture indicates is that God is actually bringing everything into existence, right? Where there was nothing, now there is something. Where there was this void of nothing and darkness, now there is this world teeming with life and beauty. In his commentary on Genesis, uh, R. Kent Hughes tries to capture the scope of this creative power just to give us kind of a sense of how immense it is that God created the heavens and the earth. 
And he references a book by physicist Stephen Hawking called A Brief History of Time. And in this book, Hawking says that our galaxy is over 100,000 light years across. This translates to about 600 trillion miles. Ours is an average-sized galaxy. He says we now know that our galaxy is only one of some 100,000 million that can be seen using modern telescopes. And each galaxy itself contains some 100,000 million stars. It's commonly held that the average distance between these 100,000 million galaxies is 3 million light years. And if that wasn't enough, most scientists believe that, that the universe is constantly expanding and that the farthest galaxy away from us is 8 billion light years away. And so if you flash a flashlight up in the night sky, it'll take 8 billion years for that light to make it to the far reaches of the galaxy. And what Genesis 1 is telling us, the scope of God's power is that every speck of dust, every individual atom in all those 100,000 million galaxies in those 8 billion light years from here to there, every single one was created by God out of nothing. Now, not only that, that's not really actually the focus of Genesis 1, but when we zoom into our own world and we think about the life and beauty here on planet Earth, every you know, mountain peak, every stream, every drop of water in the ocean, every speck of sand in the desert, God made out of nothing. God created all this. And so on one hand, it, it, it's just a reminder of God's immense power, but we also have to remember that it's a statement about God's exclusive power, right? When you read through Genesis 1, there's no helpers, right? There's no, uh, you know, pantheon of gods who are like, well, we'll do this and we'll do that and you do that and, you know, we each take our own little part. It's God in his Trinitarian being, as we talked about several weeks ago, but it's God creating everything on his own. No one else has this kind of power. No one else has this kind of authority over the world around us. Now, this is kind of obvious and kind of a big deal, but there's a second focus in Genesis 1 that I think is just as important, and it really goes hand-in-hand hand with this idea of God's power. And that is this idea that creation is blessing-driven. And I think this idea or this truth is a little bit less obvious in fact, we're, we're prone to miss this. See, it's easy to see God's power when we read through the creation account, but sometimes I don't think we, we look at creation and think about it in terms of purpose. That God is working tirelessly, that he is creating, that he is fashioning, that he is forming, all with this design of blessing his people. Creating a world where humanity can thrive and breathe and be fruitful and multiply. Uh, you know, I'm not super proud to admit this. I actually might have admitted this before, so if this is old news, I'm sorry. But uh, I've watched a fair amount of HGTV over the years. Are there any HGTV fans here? Oh, that's, that's good. I know there's more of you than that. You didn't want to embarrass yourselves. But you know, one of the things I've noticed on all these HGTV shows, I haven't watched all of them, but right, there's kind of a contrast sometimes between the different kinds of builders that you have, these people who are either building houses or renovating houses, right? So on one hand, you have people who are just kind of trying to build something amazing, like just trying to build the most impressive, beautiful house that they can, that they can make. And, you know, their motives might vary. They might be trying to 
you know, make a lot of money and resell the house. They might be trying to win some competition. But the goal is to do something spectacular and grand. And so, you know, they're really impressive, right? They're focused, they're detail-oriented, they're driven by excellence and expertise. And I think this is the part of creation that we most naturally associate with God, right? Like, it's easy to think of God as this master builder who, who meticulously and expertly creates something amazing. And that's not wrong. That's, that's true of God. But there's another kind of show, and this is probably the most common one or, or, or popular one on HGTV. These are the real money makers, and it's the, the specific builders. These are the people who are building or renovating a home for someone in particular. Right? So these houses are still meant to be beautiful, they're still meant to be impressive, but the focus right, is on the needs of a specific person or a specific family. Right? The house is artfully crafted for who they are, what they like, and kind of what they need in their specific life stage. So for example, right, like in this house they might build this like amazing basketball court because they have this you know, rebellious 13-year-old son who loves to play basketball. Or you know, the master bedroom has this you know, just amazing huge shoe closet because mom is obsessed with shoes and has 47 pairs of high heels and 30 pairs of, you know, whatever. She has a lot of shoes. Or they create an epic man cave for dad because he works so hard and he, he deserves it. Or, you know, they use like a special Italian tile because his great-grandma was from Italy and everybody cries as they remember grandma. And it's great television, right? Like the more personal it is, the more we're sucked in like, oh, I care so much about this house. But, right, this is the kind of build that impresses us because it's personal. It's not cookie cutter. It's crafted. And I think this is what we sometimes miss in the creation story, that God isn't just creating a random fancy house for just anyone. He doesn't like kind of, you know, like impersonally make the coolest, most awesome earth he can and then take people and put them in it and say, hey, figure it out. This is the world I made. Instead, the whole thrust of the creation story is that God is creating this for his people. He's creating a world where they can thrive, where they can be blessed, where they can experience relationship with him. In verse 27 of Genesis 1, God creates man and woman. And then the very next verse, the very first thing God says after that is, what does God do? He, he blesses them. And this kind of reflects the whole experience of the garden. When you think about what the garden is, and what Adam and Eve or people were meant to experience in creation, it's all about this place of blessing or goodness, right? When God says, and it was good, it's not just good in a vacuum, it's good for its intended purpose. See, God creates a world where we can dwell with him, experience his presence, where we can experience his provision and love, where we can have purpose and identity, where we can find peace, and rest. Now, just as a note, I, I just want to be careful how I frame this. The point isn't that God makes the whole world and everything is about us. It's not man-centered. Ultimately, there's a larger picture of our relationship with God and us worshiping him and glorifying him and glorifying Jesus. But at least on a design level, God is creating a place, a world that is good for us. See, it's not an accident that Eden 
was amazing. It's not an accident that we consider this world to be a paradise. It's amazing because God made it to be so, because God is a God of blessing, and that's what he does. Now, when you think about these, the, these two ideas in combination, it's, it's, it's a pretty big deal, right? Because we see uh, point one, right, that God is this God of immense, exclusive power. God has authority over the entire cosmos. Everything, sun, moon, stars, land, animals, sea, all of it is under his authority. It's all submitted to his divine will and purpose. And so within that, God has complete and total freedom to use his power in any way he sees fit. To make any kind of world he would want to make. But what does God choose to do with that power of all the things he could create, all the ways he could mold and shape creation to his will? He chooses to create a world that is designed and crafted to bless us. A world that is good not simply for himself, but is good for us. But simply, creation is a reminder that God is in the business of blessing his people. Not only can he do it, but it's his desire. It's something he chooses to do, and it's the driving force behind creation. Now, this is really cool, but here's why it matters so much. Right? A creation story, it's not like, it's, I think sometimes we read this story, and because the language is so elevated, and when you think about creation, it's like, well, no one was there. So, I mean, you know, the creation story must have just floated down from heaven like a gold-plated scroll or some special thing. But no, the creation story, just like the rest of Scripture, was written by a certain person in a certain time to a certain people. Now, in fact, the book of Genesis was part of a larger story, something that's called the Pentateuch. And this is the first five books of your Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It wasn't separated into five books originally. It was just one big story. And most scholars believe that the Pentateuch was written by Moses in the years of the wilderness wandering after the Exodus, right? So God delivers his people. He saves them from Egypt. He brings them out into this land. They cross the Red Sea, and then they're in the desert. They're waiting for this moment when they can enter the promised land. They're preparing for this. And so the Pentateuch is all centered around this idea of covenant. It's kind of this, this period of time, this, this time when they just get ready and remember who God is and what he's done and what he's promised them. And the center of this covenant is this promise that God had made to their ancestor Abraham, right? That go to this land, this special place where I will bless you. I'll provide for you. I'll be in relationship with you. You'll be safe and at peace. You'll find purpose and community. And the challenge of faith for, for them, you know, thousands of years ago, as they waited in the desert to, to claim this promise, was believing that God could do this and that God would do it for them. Now, this isn't an easy thing to do in any circumstance, but consider where the Israelites were, right? They've just spent 400 years in Egypt. Like, think about how long that is and how many generations that is and how much they've forgotten about God and faith and Abraham and the promise of God and how much they've lost. I think about the impact of 100 years on 
my Japanese heritage. I am 100% ethnically Japanese, but I don't speak any of the language other than being able to count to 10 and barely order sushi at a restaurant. If I don't know anything about Japanese history or customs, if you've watched 30 minutes of anime, you probably know more about Japanese culture than I do. That's the impact of four generations, about 100 years. Israel was in Egypt for 400 years, generation after generation after generation, living in an Egyptian world with Egyptian customs, Egyptian stories. And so again, think about how much they had forgotten about God and how hard it would have been to trust in, to hold on to this covenant, to believe that there was a God who could actually do this, to believe in this idea of this, this promise of blessing. The idea of covenant is so rich, but it's really hard in, in real life. And so they would have felt a lot of doubt. It would have been hard for them to trust this God. And so as Moses writes this creation story, obviously there's a lot of reasons for this. He's giving us the origins of our world and telling us how this story starts. But he also wants to make this as clear as possible. He wants to give them a vision of the God who they are supposed to trust and obey and walk with. And he says, Israel, your God, the God of the covenant, the God who brought you out of Egypt is the very same God that created everything. It wasn't the gods of Egypt. It wasn't these pagan deities, these, these you know, gods who you thought controlled the sun and the moon and the stars and the crops and the waters and the frogs and the antelope and whatever else. Instead, your God, Elohim, one God, created all of it, and he has power and authority over all of it. But not only that, not only is that your God who has power over all these things, but what did your God do with all that power? Again, he created a land of blessing and goodness for his people. See, in the Genesis 1 account, what we see is that God has already proven that he is committed to his covenant purpose. We've already seen that he's capable and willing to keep his promise. And, you know, Pastor Eric is going to talk about this way more and go into detail on this next week, so I don't want to go into too much detail here. But think about how amazing these, these parallels are between what God does in creation, creating a place where his people will be blessed, have relationship with him, the parallels between that and what God promises his people in his covenant. That's true of his covenant in Israel, with Israel, and that's true of his covenant with us, right? Like, we are kind of in that, that, that same space, right, in between. We've been brought out of slavery, re rescued, redeemed, but we're also awaiting this promise, Right? This whole idea of kingdom life that we've been talking about is this belief that as we follow God, as we go where he leads us, that he's going to take us somewhere where we will find peace and rest and goodness and blessing. There's this challenge for us to believe that God actually can do that and will do that in our lives, in our church, in the world around us. And yet we live in a world 
that says that there are other forces, you can call them gods or not, but other forces that control everything. Right? And we might not, not worship them in the same sense that the Egyptians did, but we kind of believe all these other things control you know, our, our futures and what's good and, and how fulfilled we are. And so when God says, I can get you there, I can deliver you to a place of blessing, I think we want to believe it, but we have doubts. It, it's hard. And so for both us and for Israel thousands of years ago, this creation story is, is this moment that we hold on to because we remember who God is. It's an invitation for us to look at this story and not see like a myth or a really cool story of something that, I don't know, maybe happened. But as a vision of who God truly is, and what he has and is doing in the world around us. This is the reality of our world. It's the reality of our God. And so as we just kind of get started in this series, we want to realize that the invitation here is, is, is to do so much more than just kind of understand some stories from a long time ago, but it's to draw deeper into this faith, into this trust of the God of the covenant and the God of creation. And to have a, a deeper sense of trust in who he is and where he's leading us. And so this morning, uh, as we close our time, uh, we're going to uh, sing one of my favorite songs uh, called So Will I. And this is one of those songs, I've talked about it before. It's, it's a cool song, but it's got like way too many words. But it's powerful, I think, because it's a, I think, a picture of the consistency, the continuity of God within this larger story, that we are coming before the God of creation, the God of the promise, the God of salvation, and they are all the same God. It's our God, and God continues to work and show love and show grace and his power the way he has always done. From the first pages of scripture to the last, he has had this power, and he has been working towards the same purpose, to give life and to deliver his people into blessing. Uh, let's pray together.